You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. I am coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual. And my guest this week is Salil Tripathi. Salil was born in Bombay, India, like my own father. He is a contributing editor at Mint and at Caravan, which are two of my favorite Indian uh, publications. He is currently the chair of Penn International's Writers in, Writers in Prison Committee. Salil has won numerous awards for his human rights journalism in particular. He's been a senior visiting fellow for business and human rights at the Kennedy School, Harvard University, and an advisor to several global initiatives on business and human rights issues. Salil is the author of several books. Offense, the Hindu case, is about the rise of Hindu nationalism and its implications for free speech. The Colonel Who Would Not Repent, The Bangladeshi War and Its Unquiet Legacy. I think it's obvious what that book is about. And Detour's Songs of the Open Road is a collection of travel writing. And I gather, Salil, you're currently writing a book about Gujaratis. That's right, yeah. Uh, when is that coming out? Well, hopefully late in the next year, yeah. Excellent. And I'd like to just impress upon everybody that um, you know how fussy I am about writing. I'm a professional editor. And if any of you have submitted to ARIO magazine, you know that I'm quite a heavy-handed editor. I like to trim the fat. And Salil is one of my favorite writers. I haven't I haven't read your book, Salil, because um, I, I live here in Buenos Aires and we have very restricted shipping for books. Mm. So I usually only, I can only read things when they're on Kindle. But I have read a lot of your articles and you have an absolutely classic elegant literary and elusive but very 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 clear and limpid uh style it's ab- it's an absolute uh pleasure just from a the pers- from a reader's perspective that's very kind of you thank you i'm not being kind i tell it like it is <laughs> before i start the podcast I am going to talk to Salil a little bit about letter. And some of you are already very familiar with this. I will put a timestamp so that you can skip this discussion if you want to. But for anyone else who needs to know, and for you, Salil, I am involved in a startup. It's called Letter or Letter Wiki uh, is our website. And it's a platform and also an app for one-on-one letter writing. So what we do is provide a space for people to have correspondence with each other in digital form, e-pistolary, as as one of our users calls it. Um, 
that is without there's no um there are no comments then no third parties can come in and derail your discussion there are no likes it's just a conversation between you and the other person but all of those conversations are public so what we're trying to do is create a a feeling that is a bit like a virtual salon um or a kind of old-fashioned republic of letters a space where people can have these kinds of discussions but in this more personal one-on-one way um but which everyone can benefit from reading mm-hmm. and we have had um people have been discussing uh we've had several evolutionary biologists um talking there Massimo Piliucci and David Sloan Wilson talking about uh group selection theory we have people evolutionary psychologists talking about the nature of sex and its implications for trans rights um we have um people talking about the gun control debate we have people talking about abortion about identity politics so we're having we have a lot of dialectical conversations with two people on opposite sides of a difficult topic uh, or controversial topic um one of our most uh read and longest standing ones is a discussion um between a journalist and a member of uh Antifa mm-hmm. which is about pol- political whether violence is ever justified for political aims and we also have a lot of ordinary people having uh conversations about child rearing about health about social media so i i want to invite everybody to go and check out letter and we have a matchmaking service so you can write a letter in a bottle um and we will look for somebody to correspond with you and we will suggest correspondence for for people so if you have a topic that you want to write about but you don't have anyone to write to then go ahead and ask us and we also a lot of our discussions are more are not are not arguments or debates they're just explorations and um yeah check it out and in particular there is we are having a hosting a competition at the moment it's called the impossible conversations competition and we are offering a shared cash prize to the two correspondents who have the most interesting and productive conversation across a major disagreement so it's not it's not a debate we're not going to offer the prize to whoever whoever convinces us of their side it's it's about how good a conversation you can have with someone with whom you have radical disagreements and i'm looking for a correspondent at the moment and this is going to be relevant to the indian theme for um prakash shah he is the reader reader in law and culture at queen mary college university of london and he would like somebody to take the other side of the argument from him um he is a bjp and modi supporter and a defender of the government's actions in kashmir and he feels that india's treatment as a subject in the media and academia 
seems stuck in some sort of 19th century Orientalist cubicle. And he's particularly talking about criticisms of Modi's government. If anyone disagrees, we are looking for you um, to have a conversation with Prakash and potentially win a prize. And our the most interesting conversations become the topic of feature articles that I write regularly for Ario Magazine. So that's letter. Welcome, Salil. Thank you. So I'd like to maybe we could start there with Prakash's quest with Prakash's question. How do you feel that um, the Indian media and the international media have been portraying recent developments in in India? What have they got right? What have they got wrong? And in in what what ways do you feel that they have been courageous and in what ways irresponsible? So, yeah, it's a good way to divide the two. I think uh, the bottom line I think I have is that the international media can do more, but it's not able to do more because it doesn't have access. Um, international media would like to go into Kashmir and do its own investigations and reporting. Um, if there is nothing to hide, why not disclose it? You know, that's the principle I would start with. That if things are indeed as nice as the government claims they are, then why is it that nobody is independently able to go and verify it? Mm. So that's the part of the international media that I would like it to do more. I do think that in terms of commentary about Kashmir in the international media has been rather timid. Uh, they're predictable, you know, um, outrage and saying that remove the restrictions sooner and so on. But it, there hasn't been much informed criticism. I mean, one of the glaring examples of terribly shoddy piece of commentary was by Roger Cohen in the New York Times, uh, who wrote an extremely ill-informed piece, probably written after meeting a senior Indian government official who gave him the Indian party line um, and uh, basically repeated those facts. I don't know how Cohen went about doing it. So I'm not saying that's all he did. Cohen is a distinguished reporter. He has done a fantastic report out of Australia some years ago about how the Australians are keeping refugees uh, who seek asylum into Australia, into this island called Manus, and spoke to a whistleblower. And it was outstanding piece of reporting. So it's not as if Cohen doesn't know how to get it right, but that's only when he has tried to get it right. And here it seemed not. So that's a one glaring example. And for those who want to know more, should look at Isaac Chortina's brilliant interview with Cohen in The New Yorker, I think a week ago or so. But that's just one example. It's not the only one and that I can think of where the international media could do more. But uh, those who have been able to go in, The New Yorker has been able to go in. New York Times has been able to get send people in. They present a sobering reality. Let's leave it at that. I don't want to get alarmist here. So that's one part of it. I'll just interject to say that everything that we mention will be in the show notes. I will look up all these articles and make sure okay. they're linked, just so you can feel relaxed about, about knowing that. Yeah, sure. Great. Uh, now, as far as Indian media is concerned, there are two types. There are those uh, which are, I, I, I don't want to talk about the state-run media, because the private television media is literally acting like a government mouthpiece, most of it. I mean, you know, whether it is Republic TV or ZTV or Ajtak, which is a Hindi channel, uh, Hindi language channel by my former magazine, India Today. Uh, if you see them, they are literally mouthpieces of the government. And uh, 
um they are more like opinion channel rather than news channel they uh, anyone who challenges the government view is attacked very very viciously i mean there's nothing wrong with robust questioning but uh, similar robustness should be directed at the government too which you don't see from these channels ndtv is one channel which is trying to be somewhat uh, neutral in this respect and it shines only in comparison i mean if you had a really proper uh, spread of uh, television news then probably ndt would be somewhere in the center and i wouldn't call it uh, the extreme on the other side at all uh, in terms of news print media i mean it's again uh, basically they are entirely dependent and beholden to what the state tells them uh, some websites have tried to do more i mean scroll is a good example wire is another example print is another example caravan has been able to send actually people into the state and come back and you know i mean any time anything of this nature happens you want independent scrutiny and the government has been successful in preventing independent scrutiny and independent interviews so just as we are you know deeply and profoundly skeptical of anything that china says about xinjiang xinjiang and uyghurs we should be similarly skeptical about the claims from india about what's happening in kashmir just as we would be skeptical about what israel says about what have what happened happened in the occupied territories so uh, i think it is in, indeed in two parts that indian media has been both have been timid western media probably because it's not been able to get in and if it gets in we'll get a clearer view and indian media uh, there was an old phrase during the indian emergency in 1975 to 77 when um, lk advani who almost became i mean who would have been the prime minister of the bjp had bjp won in uh, 2009 which it did not um the parliamentary election uh, advani had very famously talked about the indian media during the emergency that you were asked to bend and you crawled today it is like uh, they are asked to jump and most of the media in india seems to be saying how high mm yes you talked also uh, in a recent article about the way that indian media behaves Uh, has behaved during conflicts with Pakistan. Um, I'm yeah. going to read a little. I'm um, I'm going to read a a, a quotation from that. Um, mm -hmm. You say you're talking about journalists' role in war, and you say there are profound questions about the role of journalists during conflict, of what it means for them to declare allegiance or support for a nation and its armed forces. The nature of conflict reveals why this is a dangerous proposition. Governments have great incentive to lie during wartime and conflict, and a prevailing jingoistic atmosphere often forces people to take sides. In the fog of war, truth remains elusive and often at variance with what our side claims and what we want to be true. Even the use of these possessive pronouns takes on added meaning. The role of journalists then is to remain skeptical and to question and challenge all assertions, ours and theirs. Um, that should also give you, uh, my listeners a flavor of of Silio's writing, which is just absolutely pellucid. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. So, I, I, um, the Indian, the way the Indian media, um, many members of the Indian media has behaved, the kind of flag waving way that they have behaved during recent dogfights with mm. Pakistan. Um, tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so it's been quite pathetic. I mean, uh, the the most glaring example is, uh, I think, one, it was a Telugu channel, if I'm not mistaken, where um, a reporter came wearing military fatigues and carrying a toy gun. <laughs> and uh, seriously, there's a YouTube video of it, probably still or somewhere on the internet. Uh, and he was, of course, speaking in Telugu, which I don't understand, but uh, essentially saying that how... Uh, India is going to give a proper robust reply to Pakistan over the attacks in Balak uh, attacks in in Pulwama in 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 the Indian Kashmir. So that was one. Um, uh, in a previous incident, where again there was this so-called um, attack that India had made in the uh, in hot pursuit in in Pakistan. At that time, another soldier came wearing a balaclava or you know one of those heavy jackets that. Uh, war correspondents wear when they are in the field but he was in a television studio and you know and wearing that kind of and to, to kind of creating an impression that uh, soldiers are warriors and that's dangerous because you know then then they become propagandists and i think to by many uh, um, indicators uh, a lot of indian journalists have ended up being propagandists uh, particularly those on television um, and television is the pre- main source of information for many now in india so to that extent, that's profoundly problematic because uh, uh, it's, it perpetuates the us and them kind of a syndrome. Now, I'm not saying that um, a reporter will not have a view. I mean, if you are an Indian or a Pakistani, you will want your side to win, whether it's cricket or conflict. Uh, no question about it. But uh, you have to overcome that so that the decision about who's right and who's wrong is made in an informed manner by the listener or the viewer or the reader. I mean, if you start guiding them, it's fine to guide uh, in an opinion piece or in a, in, you know, in on an op-ed page or in a column. Columnists are meant to have an opinion. They should not say on the one hand and on the other hand. But uh, when you're reporting, you should give just the facts, ma'am. You know, as the reporters used to say um, in 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 old tabloids in America, they just they're supposed to report the facts. And uh, you know. There are so many questions unanswered about what happened in Pulwama to start with. What were the security lapses that led to this young man uh, blowing up the convoy of Indian trucks? And uh, whether India indeed attacked a terrorist uh, camp in Pakistan, in Balakot. I mean, there are all kinds of questions there. Uh, there has been no proper scrutiny. Some foreign-based defense experts have tried to piece together the story and challenged some of the assertions. And... Uh, those have been dismissed, but again, without giving any counter evidence. So we are just supposed to take it at face value, um, what the governments are claiming. And uh, that's never a good thing for anything, because, I mean, uh, governments have to earn that trust and not command or demand it. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel about um, more generally the coverage of Indian international journalism? So I know that one thing that you've highlighted um, is the the sort of um rosy spectacled treatment of um the history of the east india company period of hegemony and the raj um and the the kind of gap between perceptions and reality in that regard how do you feel about more recent international coverage of of india and indian affairs so i mean india the- yeah, India does get into the news for the odd quirky story all the time, you know, such as a raft of monkeys in New Delhi. That's a story that almost every foreign correspondent comes to such a modern capital and then seeing monkeys coming and being quite a nuisance becomes a story there. 
or writing about what are called the dabbawalas in bombay these are the um, people who um, carry food cooked at home to people's homes and it's an incredible logistical mm-hmm. exercise you know where um, hundreds of thousands of homes uh, where you know the homemaker women cook the lunch and keep it ready in a box and these boxes are taken in an extremely intricate manner with kihotic and you know i mean um, signs and numbers and colors on the boxes and delivered to the right person at the right time warm food i mean that's an incredible logistical exercise now it's a great story but it's been written about like 45 times at least you know all these stories keep getting repeated again and again there's a temple in rajasthan where people worship rats there's a temple in bihar where people worship the english language now all these are great stories the first time but not the 19th mm. time or 20th time so yes there is that kind of exotica that keeps repeated stories on caste keep getting repeated stories on certain kinds of atrocities on women keep getting repeated but my response to that forget about the exotic stories because those are you know cute stories which everybody will pick up but what about the stories about violence against women or violence against dalits or violence against muslims and a lot of people get very angry who are card carrying indian nationalists that this is not right because it shows india in a poor light and my point is that if india does something that is poor it will be shown in poor light i mean if you want to stop stories about violence against women appearing in the new york times stop violence mm. against women because once that is stopped there won't be those stories there'll be some nice stories about how did india fix the problem or if there is a story about lynchings all over india of people who are trading cattle or suspected of eating beef and people are annoyed about it stop those lynchings stop muslims being killed i mean if that happens then those stories will not happen so i mean it's very easy to say that western media only focuses on the negative but it focuses on the negative because the negative exists so it's the onus is actually on india to stop generating the bad stories rather than to complain to journalists that you are only writing negative stories and it's not as if only negative stories do get written i mean a lot of people have for the last 25 years been writing about the large middle class boom in india or the rural markets of india or the fact that um, you know some women have risen very high in the field of science and technology every time indian india sends something in outer space whether it's successful or not you have stories about the isro women the women of the indian space research org which is a great story and it really is a counterintuitive story because on one hand you hear about female dropout from education atrocities against women and yet you find all these women a lot of them upper caste and hindu no question about it uh, being extremely brilliant scientists if you look at the indian banking sector it's full of women doing extremely well a lot of indian banks have women as chairs and and ceos and so on which is something you know in the western world where i live women are still trying hard to break those glass ceilings and indian women in india have broken those ceilings so there are those positive stories too and which of course we know because they are written about it's not that they are not written about but it's if it wants to be an open society people will look at that which is ugly and that which is beautiful yes of course um i think that i mean i do have some sympathy with people who say that um when we are looking at the stories of of lynchings etc we should we should keep bearing in mind the the sheer size of the indian population um i mean i think india is about to overtake china as the most populous nation yeah in a couple of decades certainly yeah and the numbers we have for lynchings are in the hundreds 
um, and Indian population, right. the Indian population is over a billion. Um, so I don't want people to feel that this is the everyday of life in India. Um, however, the number of lynchings uh, in a in a secular country should be zero. In any country, should be zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And more worrying is kind of reactions and attitudes. People, mm. um, people justifying or apologizing for this kind of behavior, or strange, uh, strange questions like, "Well, this person was killed for allegedly eating beef. Let's um, the police." Uh, in some cases, took samples from the fridge <laughs> yeah. to test yeah. to see whether they were beef. I mean, that's completely irrelevant. Um, yeah, it's it's like it's like if if a woman has been sexually abused, it's to measure the size of her miniskirt. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and we all know that even women in hijab and saris get uh, get sexually assaulted. So, I mean, what she wears is entirely her choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so do you feel that the Western media has been um, remiss, not in presenting a too, a too negative image, but do you think that there are some things in w- ways in which the Western media does misrepresent or certain elements the Western media misrepresent India? So, so, yeah, I mean, of course, there are parts of Western media which like to, you know, show India in, a, in an adverse light. I mean, no question, the tabloids in Britain routinely write about, uh, you know, as soon as you have a story of Britain giving, let's say, 10 million pounds for female literacy in India. I mean, there's a, always a debate in, in Britain whether um, India should be receiving foreign aid at all from India because India has money to waste on buying aircraft carriers or, you know, buying weapons or or, you know, having um, uh, spending huge amounts of money for no reason. Um, and, and if India is rich enough to do X, like hosting the Commonwealth Games, why is Britain giving um, foreign aid to India? That mm. kind of story periodically happened. And I think, I mean, that's complete non-sequitur because those are not comparable entities. Uh, you do have extreme poverty in pockets of the U.S. while it is in a way, the wealthiest society in the world. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't do a bit. Do always coexist. There are never absolutes of that kind. But that said, I think uh, on the lynching aspect, the fact that there are only a handful of lynchings, what the statistic that interests me is not whether there are only so many lynchings per billion people, but the fact that in 2009, there were X number of lynchings, and lynchings, and today it's 5X. Uh, the very fact that there has been a quadruple increase or quintuple increase in these kinds of incidents after a particular watershed political event, such as Narendra Modi coming to power, that is the interesting story. That It's not that lynchings have always happened or that they are very few in number, but the fact that they are rising at an alarming rate, nobody does anything about it. People who are released on bail, ministers of the central government go and garland them if one of them dies. Um, their bodies are covered with a national flag. And um, if an incident happens, Mr. Modi takes 10 days, 15 days to issue a very mild rebuke about it. These are the things that make it an interesting story. Yes. I think that uh, in in one of your articles, I believe you highlighted something that I have really noticed about, um, about Modi, uh, which is that uh, it's very he's very unlike Trump, in that Trump just has... Um, absolutely no emotional self-regulation and just spill, uh, mm. 
I I think there are various theories about what Trump is up to, but um, he, he himself says all of the most extreme things. Um, whereas mm. what Modi tends to do is um, it's other members of his party, including some really high up members of the party like Amit Shah and um, and Yogi Adityanath. Um, I think Yogi particularly notoriously. Um, as I said in in the, my last India podcast, Yogi is my least favorite man in India. Um, it's he allows them to say the ex, the extremely um, outrageous and bigoted things. Um, like mm. Yogi on one of his campaigns said uh, was passing through a Muslim area and and, um, and shouted over the megaphone that Hindus should no longer sit kind of silent while their rights were abused and Muslims should watch out because Hindus were rising up and they were going to, if if Muslims dared to attack them, they would take their revenge. I don't remember the exact words, but it was incredibly inflammatory. And, yeah. and of course, there was just silence from Modi. And then recently, some members of the party were praising Nataram Godse, who was the um, assassin of um, Gandhi. So it was um, mm. uh, Gandhi Divas recently, the day that Gandhi's Gandhi's uh, birthday commemoration celebrations. And um, mm. uh, God say for anyone who doesn't know, assassinated Gandhi because he, God say, was a Hindu nationalist and he did not, he felt that uh, he did not like Gandhi's policy of appeasal um, as he thought it was to Muslims. He didn't want Muslim-Hindu harmony in India. And some members of the party have been praising him, which is um, an ex- extraordinarily horrifying thing to do. And basically, there was silence, silence, silence. And then, um, then Modi said something vaguely distancing himself from that. So I feel as though it's it's almost as if he lets the other members of the party do his dirty work for him in the press. No, absolutely. And even in the case of Nathuram Godse, the, the, the classic example is that there is a politician in the party called Pragya Thakur, Pragya Singh Thakur, I think that's her name. And uh, she won the parliamentary elections um, that took place in May. And uh, she had his Godse. And uh, during the campaign, uh, Modi actually said that he was deeply disappointed and he will not forgive her. Um, We are now in October and uh, there has been no action taken against her. Now, I'm uh, I'm aware that, you know, uh, on one level, I like free speech. And on the second, at the second, at the same time, I'm t- talking about action being taken against her. But, you know, of course, Pragya Thakur has a right to say what she wants to say. And I'm glad she does because that means we know where she stands. But we also feel that as a re- leader of a party and as a prime minister who writes articles in the New York Times praising Gandhi, as he did um, the other day uh, on the on the birth anniversary, it is also his responsibility to send the right message across that, um, uh, where does he stand on on a view like this? And uh, he clearly hasn't taken any any action. That's all. I'm noting it. I'm not saying he should or he should not, but uh, I'm noting it. And it's very uh, it's very interesting the fact that he hasn't acted. 
Um, yes, I think it's one thing having free speech, and it's another thing um, being a representative of your political party. Um, yeah. I think that a political party has has a right and, in fact, a duty to say this does not represent us, and therefore you cannot you cannot stand for our party yeah. anymore. Um, you can stand as an independent candidate. You can say mm-hmm. the thing. You can publish it. Uh, whatever you like. I'm also very strongly in favor of of free speech, um, but. It's quite another to just allow people who are your party representatives to say these things and still stand as your party representatives. Yeah. As you've talked about elsewhere, and I wanted my readers to be kind of aware, um, although there there is free speech is mentioned in the Indian constitution, um, there are a couple of sections of the constitution. I think it's two two ninety five a, and the other one is. One fifty one five three a yeah, but they are both in the in the criminal procedure oh, the code penal code uh, yes. yeah. yeah yeah in the penal code that's right yeah and those are are sort of really authoritarian vestiges of colonialism embedded in the Indian penal code and that uh, I think as in as in a number of post colonial countries these are laws which still apply to India. And which have been kind of discarded in the West, but were part of the part of the way in which India was governed, and which were then taken over by independent India and shouldn't have been. And these are the um, the codes um, criminalizing speech that offends religious sensibilities. I can't remember how it's phrased. Religious sentiments. I think that's that's a phrase. I think. And 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 you know, disrupting communal harmony is another phrase that comes up in this context. Yes, yeah, so it's speech that um, that offends religious sentiments and speech that are uh, uh, against communal harmony or that that mm-hmm. disrupts communal harmony. However, it, however it is phrased, and of course, those are in- extremely subjective criteria, and very much ripe for abuse for censorship yeah absolutely i mean these are as you rightly point out these are the vestiges of the colonial era uh, they come back uh, to the code of P- penal code that was written in 1861 by uh, thomas macaulay and i think the interesting part about the code is that uh, think of the year it was written 1861 or 1860 when it was finally codified um uh, it was two years after the what the Brits called the Sepoy Mutiny and what Indians called the First War of Independence mm. in 1857. And after that, um, the Queen uh, Victoria took over the administration of India. East India Company lost control over running the Indian state. And the idea of the the government basically realized that you know it has to treat the people as colonial subjects, and therefore it imposed a series of laws that govern their behavior as subjects rather than as citizens. And to prevent disruption and harmony, which can lead to conflict, became the priority. Now, I'm not saying that conflict and uh, disruptions are necessarily good, but in a democratic society, there will be friction. And so long as disagreements are non-violent, they should be allowed to be aired. And instead, what you have is this law, which has been in place and which has only got stronger and stronger, and uh, the other pernicious part of it that literally anyone can sue. sue. Uh, it's not the state which is often doing the prosecution. So 
if you say something that offends my sensibility, I, I mean, I go to the police and lodge a complaint, and the police then starts investigating it. It almost becomes a routine factor where the first information report is lodged, and you have to be answerable, and the case could be anywhere in the country. So uh, it can have a nuisance value at one level, but it, it can also stop your free expression. And the best example of that is the famous Indian artist M. F. Hussain. Uh, against whom there were hundreds of cases filed all over India uh, because he painted a few Hindu goddesses in the nude. And um, he de basically decided to leave the country. He started living in London, a bit in Abu Dhabi, and in the end in Qatar uh, because he thought that if he remains in India at his age, he was in his 80s or 90s, he would be going from one uh, district court to another answering cases rather than painting, which is what he wanted to do. Mm. Um, one more question that I want to ask you about about India um, before going on to talk a little bit uh, about um, international inter the international situation. Um, you talk about in the caravan in an article which I'll link to. Um, you call it the Modi myth, and mm -hmm. as I understand it, this is the myth, the kind of classic the fascists made the trains run on time myth that as long as you have economic development, um, that can make up for communal bigotry, un, uh, social unrest, discrimination, etc. Could you flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, so this is the Faustian bargain. I think some uh, want to make. I'm not saying that everybody wants it that way. But they, it's like, you know, that old argument that to make an omelette, you have to break some eggs. It's a bit bit like that, that, uh, uh, yeah, um, you had to jail the trade union leaders, but as a result, we had industrial growth. Or you had to jail environmentalists, but then we needed the coal plant. Um, so this kind of an argument you hear to justify the power and privilege of the elite in almost every society. And therefore... That's part of this argument that because Modi can make Gujarat grow and by implication India grow, we have to take the slack that comes from that. And of course, the, the argument can be dissected and examined in two ways. One is whether the cost is uh, worth a cost for a free, liberal, democratic society. And the second, are the benefits real benefits? Uh, has, real, has, has there really been growth? Because, I mean, even if we were to go back to the Gujarat model of economics, there are studies that show that, you know, in terms of malnutrition, in terms of um, empowerment of girls and so on, the social development indicators of Gujarat, even during the 12 years that he was the chief minister of the state from 2002 to 2014, were pretty grim. I mean, they were not uh, leaders by any reckoning. And in the last five years, uh, there are many, many accounts of Indian economy which show that actually the progress has been limited or it has regressed in some ways um, uh, when they decided to do with high-value currency notes for some time. That also had an adverse impact on rural markets. India is still reeling from that. So, uh, and and there has been a slowdown in the economy. You know, I mean, automobile sales, airline ticket purchases. Um, people are not postponing the decision to decision to buy a box of cookies. You know, parley glucose biscuits. Its sales have collapsed um, also. So clearly people are no longer as, you know, I'm not saying whether or not they're prosperous, but they're not as willing to spend as they used to spend a year ago, two years ago. So clearly this model is not working, but for some reason, and that's where the myth comes in. 
there's a myth making is so strong that people are uh, ignoring that and assuming that everything is fine well demonetization seemed to me like a very obvious example of a terrible uh, economic policy hmm. which it was yes i mean it was bad on many fronts i mean because if i've always felt that whenever you take an action and find multiple reasons to justify it week after week that means something was something else was a real objective and the fact that the excuses aren't working so we were initially told it was to curb terrorism but that hasn't happened after that we had the pulwama attack in india uh, then we were told it was to curb black market that hasn't happened we were told that a large amount of money which was held illegally will never return to the uh, banks and therefore those currency notes will die now we know that about 98.5% of currency notes which were in circulation did come back uh, which can mean one of two things of course that uh, it could mean that the bank the central bank didn't know how many notes were in circulation to start with um, and maybe some fake notes came back or the other is that there was black money in india no one denies that i mean property transactions do take place with cash and gold and so on but most of that black money is in other forms it's either as gold it's in property it's in shares which are called benami which means other people's names uh, and so on it's never held in cash i mean cash as a way of holding black money is very popular as an image in bollywood cinema where you know you see people exchanging suitcases full of cash but uh, uh in the real world people do do it differently and do have more sophisticated ways of doing it which either the government didn't know or it knew and it ignored that because it played very well with electorate um, and maybe the original aim was indeed to curb the liquidity so that opposition parties are you know caught standing while the music stopped and it was musical chairs and um they had they, they had to get out of uh, of the game um i think that that's another explanation that people have given so what the real rationale is we will never know um uh, but enough indicators show that it was a failure and i'm not even talking about the horrendous cost borne by people who live on daily wages who suddenly found that you know nobody had um, since certain notes were gone uh, people were not being paid i mean taxi drivers uh, um in bombay were telling me you know how they would uh, have a bill of let's say 65 rupees and somebody would give them give them only a 500 rupee note and they would not be able to pay back the change and um you know the transaction i mean people would leave without paying the cab driver now these are uh, cab drivers are still relatively better off than day wage laborers in rural india but there was a significant impact on people's lives adverse impact yeah i think that um i mean in 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 many cases i think a parallel case for me is what has been happening recently in the northeast where people have been asked to bring in documentation proving their indian citizenship um yeah. that uh, i i think that people listening internationally have to bear in mind just how what a what a huge proportion of the indian population doesn't have the doesn't have you know a computer at home and um and even maybe a bank account and access to those the kinds of things that would make this make any sense um the number mm. of people who just don't have documentation um and not because they're illegal just because um this is uh, this th- these are people living in too much poverty too simplistic too too kind of simple conditions um 
they don't they don't have all their documents stored in a nice filing cabinet and in electronic copies on their MacBook. It's it's yeah. just um, absurd. And whenever you make those kinds of really rigid bureaucratic requirements, the people who suffer are the poorest and least privileged people. The ones mm-hmm. who who don't they don't they don't have the documents. They can't fulfill the red tape things. Right. They don't have the fancy bank accounts. They can't pay with their Paytm account or whatever it might be. Um, they they need cash to get through their day to day. So these these kinds of endeavors always they don't hit the big players who really have a lot of black money. Those people have already transferred their money to their Swiss bank accounts or their Bitcoin or whatever. Um, they hit the the they hit the guy who doesn't have um, 500 rupees to get through the next week. Absolutely. And and th- their lives were made hard. I mean, that's the point about uh, why this was. In fact, you know, uh, one of the things that Mr. Modi said when he declared demonetization, that the poor don't have to worry, the rich who will have sleepless nights. And actually the poor who had the sleepless nights. I mean, some rich probably did have sleepless nights. Um, but I don't. Um, I didn't see anyone very rich jumping off the high-rise building and committing suicide. But you do hear about poor crying at the bank, saying that please let me have some cash. So that's just reality. Yeah, there was an excellent book about this by um, uh, the banker called uh, Mira Sanyal, who sadly passed away. She was a good friend of mine. Uh, called the Big Reverse, which is really worth reading for anyone who wants to know how it made no economic sense, no developmental sense, no social sense. Um, and if it made any sense, she's very restrained in her writing. I mean, she, she was very restrained in explaining uh, what happened, but uh, not really uh, able to understand why this had been undertaken. Yes, I will link to that. And also, I recently read your obituary of hers, which I'll also link to. And I, one other thing that I wanted to outline which is, I think for the sake of balance a little bit, I have some empathy with this. And it's it's the whataboutery thing, which is, of course, a whataboutery is a really has become a plague on on modern public discourse in, in every country and area. When you try to denounce one thing, people will say, well, what, what about this other thing right over here? Um, they won't stick to the subject at hand, and they use a kind of defense. Mm. Um, this bad thing is okay because this other bad thing also happens. And I'm going to read a short passage that you wrote about it. Uh, so you said, the meaningless question, which begins with what about, is tossed around as though it is a winning debating argument. Why didn't you protest then? Isn't it because of this? And what of that? Surely this is an example of manufactured dissent, a minister says, scarcely aware of the irony that what he is after is what Noam Chomsky called manufacturing consent. And I do, I do feel that um, Indians are Olympic gold medalists at the whataboutery. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's absolutely the worst, um, when I'm, when I'm talking about Indian issues, um, and I I do have some sympathy because there there is 
yes, I'm I'm very critical of Modi's government, but also Congress has a ter- has had um, has had a terrible record. So I understand people pointing that out. There's been widespread um, corruption. Uh, there's been a lot of pusillanimity um, about really embracing proper secularism, free speech, and rights. There was the emergency, which is an, an was an absolute blot on Indian politics um, and on the Congress Party's reputation. Then also, if you're talking about um, misogyny and um, casteism and other problems within Hinduism, then of course you can look over and you can see a million problems within Islam. Um, and when you're looking at, at oppressive government, at oppression of minorities, at silencing and um, offences against free speech, etc., you can look straight across the, the border and see what is happening, what Imran Khan is doing in Pakistan. Um, so in a sense, there is this curse of always having the other thing, which is equally, if not equally as bad, if not worse, but it's not, it's a terrible and kind of completely disabling excuse that just totally derails, um, derails conversation uh, about Indian topics. And I hate it. Um, I, I don't care what's happening in with Islam right now. I don't care what Imran Khan is doing. We are talking about this subject no, no, I agree with you entirely because when people talk about, um, you know, but what about Pakistan? I say, but why is your yardstick to measure India, Pakistan? Uh, could you do this in Saudi Arabia? I said, no, I can't, but I can do it in Norway. I can do it in Denmark. I can do it in mm. England. I can do it in Australia or New Zealand. I can probably do it in Argentina where you are. Mm. Um, uh, why is a yardstick or a benchmark? Um, so low. I mean, that itself shows the timidity and limit of the vision that the Hindu nationalist has when he says that, oh, but you can't do this in Bangladesh. Of course, but that's not my uh, that's not my alternative. I mean, I, if you want to have the ideal of the kind of India it should be, it should be what Tagore talked about, where the mind is without fear and head head is held high in that wonderful poem of his, you know, into that heaven of freedom. Uh, compare Compare it with that absolute rather than something that's relative, that's bad. Likewise with um, you know, um, uh, the problems within Hinduism versus Islam. I mean, the question is not Hinduism versus Islam. The question is Hinduism versus a universal declaration of human rights. If you're falling short of that, that's a problem. It is not enough to say that, oh, but Islam is worse or Christianity is worse or any other faith is worse than that. I mean, um, until recently, most of the world thought Buddhism was a nice and pacifist religion until we saw what the Rohingyas are suffering or what the Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka, what has been done to um, you know, non-Buddhists uh, by the Buddhists. So, so that is another part of it. And yes, of course, Congress has banned a lot of books. And yes, of course, Congress has been corrupt. But yes, of course, Congress had 1984. But is the implication that because the Congress had 1984, please let us have 2002? That seems to be the logic. And I think that's a completely flawed logic. You have to make your argument by comparing your own faith, whether it's Hinduism or Islam, with the ideal and not with what something else which is similarly bad. That's the problem with what about it. Salil, I wanted to just move on to talk to you a little bit about journalism and the journalist's role in general. And 
first of all, could you tell me why you why you personally became a journalist? What inspired you? Good, very good question, and I wish there was a simple answer to that because um, I mean, what I studied and what I'm doing there's a vast difference. I mean, I. I was a student of economics and then I got an international uh, degree. I was in America and got an MBA from a very fine business school. And ideally, I should be an investment banker somewhere, you know, and uh, putting lots of money in Mr. Modi's India or something like that. But I didn't do that. Uh, instead, I, um, I used to write uh, um, uh, as a college student and I really liked it. And I think one of the drivers has been curiosity. The other is that I do think I'm a reasonably decent storyteller. I want to make sense of the world around me and I want to share it with people. And some of it has to have an advocacy nature, of course. I mean, I don't like things being banned. I don't like injustice and human rights violations. So I end up writing more about it. But I'm able to write purely reported pieces and uh, things that are more advocacy oriented. So that's fine. So I think it's a combination of wanted, wanting to stay engaged with the world, to understand it, to be curious about it, and to share what I found with others and tell those stories. I think that's the, the reason I, I am doing what I'm doing. Mm. Who are your particular um, journalistic um, icons? So I do like Woodward and Bernstein and what they did with the Washington Post with uh, Nick. I like investigative reporters in general. I don't want to start picking. I mean, there are other writers I like because of their style. I like John Lee Anderson when he writes on Latin America. There are numerous Indian journalists right now who are doing terrific job of, uh, you know, doing field reporting. Anyone who writes about issues by, you know, going close to the ground and listening and writing back and telling stories. Uh, Jean Hartsfeld is another person I've uh, learned a lot from. These are the books on uh, uh, the Rwandan genocide, uh, which I liked enormously. Early John Pilger, not the later one, but the early John Pilger, in uh, particularly his coverage of the Cambodian War, uh, is something I've learned a lot from. When I go to a new country, uh, rather than read a history textbook, I would like to read the book written by the outgoing New York Times, a Washington Post correspondent uh, uh, from that country, because you learn a lot more. Um, that way than otherwise. And uh, I mean, I don't want to start naming um, uh, people I really admire in India because it's a, it's a long list and it won't be complete and I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. Mm, mm. Thank you. Um, I also, uh, you had, you wrote a very eloquent piece about um, what you feel the journalist's role is. Um which I will also link to, uh, in that piece you say, is the writer meant to provoke, forcing us to look at reality in a way not seen, even if it is visible, to reflect on the silences, the pauses, and the parts that we ignore because it might make us uncomfortable. What do you feel are the, are the particular challenges facing journalists today, the biggest challenges? And what would you what directions do you hope to see journalism go in or go into more deeply? I think one major challenge is credibility. I think uh, both for their own failings and because of institutional failures and because of the propaganda against them uh, for three these three reasons, uh, uh, journalists' credibility is not being taken seriously. I mean, there was a time when people trusted the word of a journalist. That's not the case. I mean, you know, 
from Duterte in the Philippines to Trump in America to Erdogan in Turkey and Orban in um, Hungary and Modi and more than Modi, it was V.K. Singh, his minister in India. So, you know, call journalists, fake news peddlers and uh, 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 traders, news traders and prostitutes and words like that. And Bolsonaro in Brazil and all of them have vilified them. And that has created a culture of resentment against them. Uh, so that's one problem. Uh, it's not entirely out of place because there is the problem of liberal elitism. I mean, uh, the fact that Hindu nationalism was rising, uh, uh, a lot of media covered it as a curious phenomenon and often ridiculed it uh, from what is called the you know purchase of Lutyens town or Khan market in the Indian context. And that is a failing. I mean, you know, it, people did not take those claims seriously and didn't challenge them. If somebody came and said that, you know, Taj Mahal is actually a Hindu temple of Shiva, which was taken over by the Muslims and in outrageous theory, but nobody um, tried to take that and to understand where that came from. And I think there is that resentment that comes from that. So that's one part of it. There is institutional failure that traditional media is losing money and, uh, uh, if you want to do a very deeply reported piece by going into a small village in India, and there are some reporters who are doing a great job of that. I mean, Snigdha Poonam, Neha Dikshit, um, uh, two reports, Raksha Kumar and uh, Suini Chattopadhyay. These are the kind of reporters who are covering health, development, and rights-related issues in extremely... Rohini Mohan is another one. Saman Subramaniam, he's now not in India, but he's another one. Look, I said I wouldn't be naming Indian <laughs> journalists, but I've started naming them, uh, which is a failing. But at least yeah, I mean, that's the way it is. Yeah, I didn't want to. I, they did want people to look at their work because they are, and these are not the only ones. I mean, uh, there are many, many more who are doing superb job of that. But if you look at their work, uh, you do hear, uh, but who's going to invest in that? I mean, to do a story like that costs hundreds of thousands of rupees. To do a proper job of that and there is the money isn't there and the third is uh, the the investment and time it takes for an individual to go and do it and then you are trying to do it but when you go to a village people are going to either say that all journalists are terrible because you're left-wing and can market liberals or if you're from the minority you will be said oh you are like from republic television and you're only going to parrot the party mm. line so how do you earn the trust of someone that, look, I'm neither and I'm here just to listen? Uh, it was possible to do that 15 and 20 years ago. I mean, I wrote about Peter Hanke, the Austrian-German writer who wrote, uh, who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, I wrote about him only a few days ago uh, because I was appalled by the choice uh, because he denies that uh, uh, Serbs, were the vic Serbs were the perpetrators of the Balkan War. He called them victims. Now, I happen to have done human rights research in Bosnia and Republika Srpska, particularly. And I've spoken to people who are in death camps. Um, and uh, I knew, know that it was very hard to get them to talk because they were just tired of telling their stories and uh, not finding anything out of this. So you have to listen very carefully. And earning that trust takes time. It, and, and all of that thing, all of that costs money. So the big challenge for the, the media today and for reporters today is to earn back their trust through truth-telling by writing things that are inconvenient to your own preconceived notions. I mean, you may end up finding a story. I mean, if you were to write a good story about the rise of Modi, you will have to explain why he rose and not simply say that, oh, Indians are bigoted and therefore he rose. I mean, he clearly has responded to some needs that Indians have felt very deeply. And not just Hindus. There are 
Christians who are voting for him. There are Muslims who are voting for him. There are Dalits who are voting for him. And it has to be understood, right? Um, and that's not been happening. And I think the way forward is certain amount of humility and circumspection on the part of the media and reassess its role about how it's getting it right and go back to the basics. Yes. And um, and there's also deep fakes and things like that beginning to happen, which is yeah. really quite mm-hmm. quite terrifying. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, one of the problems is the circulation of, it's already happening, the circulation of little kind of videos, video clips completely out of context, uh, which people are mm-hmm. adding their own narratives to. And which have this, and when you watch something on video, it has this power and immediacy. Yeah. And sometimes that is very, that is very good. It prevent things that would would previously have gone hidden or have been just um, little secrets kept with within isolated communities. The world is coming to know about them, and international pressure can be brought to bear, and that that can be a good thing. And but at other times, it can be used to drum up just so much hysteria. I mean, two uh, two Indian examples, contrasting Indian examples that come immediately to mind is um, the video that I saw of um, Gagandeep Singh, the Sikh policeman who um, saved a young Muslim boy from being lynched. That's extraordinary. I'm not over that yet. I'm I'm officially I'm not over Gagandeep Singh. <laughs> that was incredible. And mm-hmm. are very inspiring um, to see. And then, on the other hand, there was the video um, which showed it showed some men arriving on motorbikes and kidnapping children. And people went um, that got shared on WhatsApp. It went absolutely viral in India, and people thought that these were child abductors, child abusers, and. Um, I believe mm. some people entered a village and they looked like the guys in this video and they were killed. Um, and it turns mm. out the video was a, the people in the video were actors and it was a child safety demonstration that was made in Pakistan. And mm. they had kind of cut off all of the context. And this had, in this game of Chinese whispers, this had become this kind of, image of wanted child abusers coming to our village keep an eye out for these miscreants really mm. extraordinary that and that's ev- without even deep deep fakes which i've already seen some astonishing deep fakes <laughs> that you can just superimpose somebody's um face and voice onto almost any actions and have almost any words coming out yeah, no, no, that's absolutely true. And uh, it is going to be more and more problematic because so much of uh, history is now digital of the contemporary times. So, you know, if you want to find something that somebody may have said 15 years ago, and you might get a, you know, that, there is a video, for example, going around of Bajpai's speech on December 5, 1992. Now, he was the Prime Minister of India from uh, 1998 to 2004. But in 1992, the day before the Babri Masjid was destroyed, he gave a speech. Uh, first of all, it's very hard to find because it's been, um, you know, uh, quite successfully, uh, people have tried to erase it from public. But what is to prevent someone from uh, morphing the voices and making it sound as that as though he did not call for the destruction mm-hmm. of the mosque, right? 
uh, and that's entirely possible. And then 30 years from now, 40 years from now, if you're going to read history and if the history and if the BJP rules for another 15 years, for example, and books are rewritten and history is changed and, and so on, uh, then that becomes um, received wisdom. So it's a very profound challenge for, uh, um, uh, you know, what was that Kundera phrase? The, the struggle of memory and forgetting. I mean, in the book of laughter and forgetting, I think that's why people want to control the past and the future, as Orwell was saying. I think we are um, getting into that phase now. And deep fake is not only about getting Obama to say something racist, which is one of the deep fake videos that I've seen, um, but also to get, um, um, make things look as though they were also said at the same time, contradicting what the public perception of the person is to completely re, re you know, there's one photograph, for example, of Gandhi dancing with, an Aust- with, with a white woman, uh, you know, almost like they're doing the tango. And uh, a lot of people from the Hindu right have been circulating it to show as though Gandhi was a, uh, you know, uh, not a nice guy uh, with women. Uh, and it turns out that it was a photograph of a party in Australia where a man dressed up as Gandhi and was dancing with an Australian mm. woman. Mm. But uh, but it's now, routinely it is being shown um, in meme after meme on Twitter and Facebook that, look, Gandhi was actually, you know, dancing and and they say this is Edwin Mountbatten is, is is also one of the things. So how do you fight that by saying a it is ridiculous? No, I think b uh, you have to do very painstaking work of the kind that alternate news that alt news website is doing in India, Zoom fact check. There are all kinds of uh, boom fact check. Sorry, there are all kinds of fact checking websites, and they need to be there. And I think all newspapers have to reinvest in the fact checking part. Uh, there was a time when you didn't uh, trust the spoken word because you wanted to see it in writing. Now. The print media has lost so much credibility. Television media has lost so much credibility that people want to trust what they see on WhatsApp. And I think I'm optimistic. I think people will realize that, you know, you can't do that. You have to have verification and facts and so on. But a lot of damage will already have been done by then. It is being done right now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end with a a question here from Twitter because it, it seems like a good note to end on. Unless there's something that you want to highlight that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, no, I think we've done uh, pretty well. So, I mean, um, let's go the way you want it, yeah. Sure. Um, I would I would also love to have you on again sometime soon. Um, okay. Because there are many more things for us to talk about. And I we haven't talked about Bangladesh, and I would love to talk about Bangladesh and Bangladeshi history with you. Um, but in the meantime... Um, so this question is from uh, Rahul Sittim. He's on Twitter. He says, journalists in India have disappeared. Voicing dissent regarding decisions is getting life-threatening and managing fairness and re- fair reporting is commendable. So the question is, will this get better or will we see it getting much worse before it gets better? Uh, th- I mean, this is hard to tell, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely right that some journalists are being uh, are disappearing. I mean, we know of a few famous cases like Shujat Bukhari and Gauri Lankesh who were murdered, and there were these other rationalists who had been murdered before that, Kalburgi and Pan- Pan- Pansare and Abolkar. Uh, so it's not that these things have not happened, but and if you look at the media in the regional non-English Indian languages, so Hindi and and, and other languages you do have a lot of attacks on, you know, reporter writing against the sand mafia and so on. 
um, and uh, it is a dangerous profession and india is a dangerous place for uh, journalists who are looking for difficult stories um, and uh, they do need support and i think it can only come through an outrage from public everybody and not just from journalists not just from opposition parties because i don't really trust opposition parties and because when they are in power they are not going to be friends of the media ultimately the journalists have only one solid support which is their viewership or readership and they have to earn back their trust and they have to people have to realize that what has happened to gauri lankesh t- mm. today mm. could happen to somebody of their ideological orientation tomorrow too and until that happens then until people see things in a divisive us and them way it's going to be a tough time and things will remain tough till till they get better and i'm sorry i can't be more optimistic than that but it's not a happy time at all well thank you it it has been a happy time this last hour talking to you salio <laughs> so thank you thank, thank you. you so so much um for uh for joining me everybody who's listening i suggest as soon as you finish listening this to this you go and read Salil's articles and I will link some of them down below and get a hold of his books and thank you so much thanks so much indra have a nice day thank you thank you have a wonderful week everyone You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.